thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Backchat, exploring the five pillars of health with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Anthony Coxon. Welcome to Backchat. My name is Paul Bergamo, and it's great to be here in our next podcast. Backchat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also your neurology. Today, we're going to explore the health pillar of being your best with your thinking. To help me today, as always, it's a great pleasure to introduce my fellow chiropractor and co-host, Anthony Coxon. G'day, Anthony. How are you going? I'm going well, Paul. Got a question for you. Yes. What's the favorite, your favorite season of the year? Well, right now, it's got to be Carlton and AFL. It's got to be footy season, doesn't it? Well, the Blues, you know, they've, they've won three in a row. We've got Port Adelaide this week at home, four yes. in a row. I mean, you know, we're it, talking finals now down at Carlton. It's you're amazing. living the dream, aren't you? Now, we should explain also for our American listeners that that's AFL, that's gridiron without all the padding. It's uh, Yeah, they're seriously combative versus yes. <laughs> uh, having all this protective gear around them. But look, Anthony, I've got to share with you, I've actually been in AFL royalty just in the last three hours. Oh, yeah? Okay, <laughs> so what we've had, we've had a situation where on Sunday uh, I coached the under-13 blacks and we had our first win. Uh, we've lost the first three. We had our first when we beat St. Mary's by 73 points. It was Big win. a magnificent day. And... Uh, I've been in touch with Glenn Archer, yes. so we're very lucky. Great footballer. Fantastic footballer, dual premiership player at the Kangaroos, and uh, we're very lucky at Park Orchards to have Glenn coaching uh, the under-14s currently, but last year he coached the under-13s. And uh, I asked him just to address my boys at the end of training tonight, just a few hours ago, because he took his team from 0 and 6, first uh, six games all losses, and then got a real solid run, and they had to win the last three games to make finals. And not only they make finals, they end up winning the premiership. Wow. So, so uh, it's funny, you know, that when you have an AFL player addressing all these thirteen-year-olds, uh, they just seem to be a lot more responsive than when I speak to really? them. Really, you don't command the same same authority as the great Shinburner? Huh? No, I don't. So, and what I'm we are very fortunate again tonight to have is another AFL uh, premiership player for the Kangaroos, a legend, an absolute legend, Wayne Swass, who's retired at elite Australian rules footballer. Wayne uh, played. Uh, 282 games for both North Melbourne and the Sydney Swans, and that included a 1996 premiership uh, for the Kangaroos. But also throughout his highly successful career, Wayne suffered from clinical depression, and we're very, very lucky tonight that we're going to have someone like Wayne, and as he said to me in sort of the preview of this, be open book about some of the challenges he's had in order to help people out there who are are suffering. Yeah, that's a serious problem, and it's uh, good that we've got someone who's uh, prepared to be open, honest, and frank, and uh, talk candidly about this topic. Excellent. So, Wayne, how are you going? Very good, thanks, Paul and Anthony. Thanks for having me on your show. Excellent. No worries at all. Now, let's just get a bit of background. So, I mean, you started uh, playing for the Kangaroos in 1988? Yeah, a long time ago. So, I was um, grew up in country Victoria, a place called Warrnambool, and was zoned to Fitzroy and stood out of footy for nine months before I got a clearance and was able to play footy for North Melbourne. 86, 87, and um, then began started. I started to play senior footy in '88, and um, had a reasonable career. So, you, so how old were you in 1988 when you played your first game? Uh, 18, just turned. 18, and you finished. What age did you finish footy? 33 and a half. Jesus, that's a great pretty career, good, isn't it? That's pretty good, isn't it? That's fantastic. Years. That's amazing. Excellent. And uh, so, your background. So, were you born in Australia or were you born overseas? No. Uh, 
I'm a Kiwi. Um, so I was born in New Zealand with my sister. Mum's Australian, and we moved from New Zealand to Australia when I was three. So I've lived here all of my life. Um, it's been a great place to grow up, but I have probably about 90% of my family, and my wife is a New Zealand girl too, so she's got roughly the same. So we have a lot of family members back in New Zealand. So a, a, a very patriotic Kiwi living in Australia. Very good. So was there pressure from the, the Kiwi family to, to take up rugby union as opposed to AFL, Wayne? No, nah, not at all, because, uh, I mean, I've grown up in this country, so I was exposed to VFL as it was back in those days, now AFL at a young age, but um, took my New Zealand family a long time to get their head around this thing which they referred to as aerial ping pong. Now <laughs> <laughs> they, they love it. They uh, absolutely love it. Very good. Very good. Well, we are here today to talk about um, depression and, and particularly to your experience uh, of this condition. When did you first become aware that you were experiencing depression or, or the symptoms of it? Um, from about the age of 18 or 19 through to 23 when I was diagnosed, um, I would have these days where I would just be overcome with a great sense of sadness without any understanding why or what it was, but they would invariably pass and um, I didn't pay too much attention to it. I just thought that that was normal Um, and it wasn't until uh, 1993, August 1993, um, that uh, things changed dramatically from an emotional point of view and uh, after two weeks of not coping and being completely out of control with my emotions, so I went and saw my GP and was diagnosed. And that was the beginning of a very, very long road, 15-year experience with uh, doing things that weren't productive and weren't helpful um, to eventually realising that I needed help and I invested as much energy into my recovery during that period as what I did in my football career. And um, I lived to tell the tale. So that's fine. We're talking in 88 you started football. It wasn't until 1993 that you had this crisis where you had no choice but to take some kind of action. Five years, that's a long time to be having those kind of experiences of intense sadness. Did you have conversations with other people about this or you said you thought it was normal, but where did you get that thinking from? Well, I'll I'll give you some context. So I, I debuted at 18. And uh, it's a testosterone fueled yeah. environment playing VFL, AFL football back in those days. Um, and the amount of times that I would have coaches say, don't care what happens during the week away from this football club, the moment you walk into this football club, you leave your problems at the door. Um, so, you know, it's interesting because as, a, as an elite athlete, you're trained and conditioned and prepared to be an elite athlete. And I think that's wonderful. But without wanting to criticise the sport or the industry, I was never trained to be an emotionally well-balanced individual. Um, Mm. There was one part of my life that I had no training, I had no skills, I had no understanding, no knowledge or education. Um, And unfortunately, physically and performance-wise, I was able to perform and I was able to cope, but emotionally, I failed miserably. And um, I don't blame my, my, my club for that, I don't blame the code for that, but if I reflect on my career it's a regret that i have that in one area of my life i was well trained i was well prepared and i could cope with enormous stress but in another area emotionally being a well-grounded young man adolescent i i was not equipped at all to cope well i think you know by you communicating this, this with us, Wayne, and then letting other people listen to this i think it's going to be a lot that's going to be learned from it so i certainly don't think it's going to be lost at all um when we talk about 
men don't cry with a with a badge of honor you know you know it's worn on their me- one sleeve and you know and imagine you know i suppose we're part of a footy club and you know we pep up the boys and fire them up and do everything we possibly can to to you know give them experiences of hopefully winning a footy game mm. but did you suffer from that regards you know keeping it all very tight and close and not really sort of um you know, sharing sort of those deep emotions and, you know, can you take us through what sort of took you through and moved you through that? Yeah, I never talked to anybody. Um, I didn't, there would be weeks, months where I wouldn't talk to my partner, now my wife, um, because there really is during that particular period of my life, um, you know, the the world's changed and men are are just as complex as as our female partners, but women have always been encouraged to open up and talk. During that period of my life, men weren't, to talk we didn't talk about emotions we didn't open up and share concerns and frustrations and stresses that we were having i mean that's that was seen to be a weakness which is fundamentally flawed i might add mm. um you know but i i never showed emotion um i shut it down i bottled up i didn't talk and that was at the expense of my own health and well-being because i was worried about what people would think so what would my father think what would my friends think what would my teammates think what would my coaches um, and worst of all what would my supporters and the opposition supporters think if i came out and opened up about some of the challenges that i was experiencing so i made a conscious decision for a very long time to ensure that everybody close or distant or people that didn't know me thought that I was okay and that was at the expense of my own health and well-being so I made it I made that conscious decision every day because I thought that that was more important as opposed to having the courage to open up be honest about it own my condition and get healthy and well again and I sacrificed my health for a very very long time until I worked out it wasn't worth it so I mean as a, as a, as a salient point here you know for, for fathers you've got kids for coaches who've got kids in their organisation, in their footy club, for staff who've got, you know, employees in their business, if you like. Mm-hmm. When you say you didn't talk, do you mean the, in the content, you didn't talk about the issues that were burning you up, but would everyone else think that Wayne is just normal Wayne, you know, mucking around, you know, that they wouldn't identify, they wouldn't identify that something was wrong or different because you'd become like a mask and cover all that up, or were you withdrawn that people would think there is something wrong with Wayne? How did you sort of how did it present? If is, is I suppose what I'm asking. Yeah, there's a there's a it's a really good question that you ask, um, Paul, and there's a few different answers there. I think the people that live with mental illnesses uh, would make very good actors because you invest every single waking moment of every day until you get in control of these conditions to pretend to everybody else that you're okay. That is misguided, misplaced, and I'm not being critical of anybody who may find themselves in that position. But you do that because, in my experience, I convinced myself that if I was to be authentic and real, open and honest, I would lose the things that were most important, family, friends, my career, opportunities, and my life as I knew it. So I didn't do that. And and if there are people, men in particular, that are listening to the podcast at some point, I think it's a great sign of courage and strength and maturity for a man to be emotional. Mm. I'm not a I'm not a crier, um, um, you know. And and, and <laughs> I've talked publicly right around the country, and my dad's been in the audience. And I love my dad, and I have openly said this in every audience where my dad has been sitting in the audience. I've only ever seen my father cry once, and that's when his mum passed away. So I grew up in this environment where, for me as a child. I adopted that attitude that, well, to cry is to be weak. 
Mm. So any emotion that would bubble towards the surface, I quickly made sure that that stayed buried very deep down inside. Mm. Um, and I, I think that I think that what we need to recognise is that, as I said before, we're just as complicated um, as our uh, fairer sex partners. Women are openly encouraged in any society or most societies to talk, and so yeah. they should be. And and um, men ignorantly think sometimes that women can nag, but one of the great things women do is they talk, and the reason why they talk is to share an issue to hopefully help or find a solution to something that might be causing them some stress. Mm. And <clears throat> I think that... <clears throat> I think that we're slowly changing, but I would encourage any man, any uh, young male and any young boy to be confident enough to be able to express your feelings and your emotions because I think that's a really critical part of being a human being. And if you suppress those emotions and you suppress those feelings, then you potentially put yourself in a situation where these mental illnesses start to have a significant effect um, on your day-to-day um, enjoyment, your ability to function, your, in- your ability to just participate in life and enjoy everything life has to offer. So, <clears throat> I don't, um, I don't make excuses for it anymore. I admire men that aren't afraid to be emotional. I have a young nine and a half boy, and I tell him every day, multiple times, how much I love him, and I give him a kiss. I'm not afraid to give him a kiss, and I'm not afraid to give him a hug. And I do the same with my daughters, and I'll do that to my, you know, I'll do that when my young boy is, is a grown man because it's important that I set an example for my son um, for him to feel comfortable that it is a normal part of being a young man turning into a young male into an adult that that is a perfectly normal part of being a male in this you know in this world that we live and I think that that's critical if we try to suppress it I think that that is fundamentally wrong for the health and well-being of men in particular yeah, it just eat, it surely must just eat you away over time, and it's just such a courageous thing that you've done to come full circle. Especially when we think of you know 1988 to, to mm. 1993, I don't think there were any uh, prominent footballers that were talking about these things, and it wasn't a something that was discussed at all. Obviously, with you know your example and uh, a few other um, eminent sort of footballers who have come out and talked about these things since then, it's mm. probably easier for people today uh, because of you know what you're doing. But, but obviously it, it reached a crisis in, in 1993, so uh, you're, you couldn't hide it any longer. Uh, tell us about the process that happened there. You know, you've spoken to your GP. Do people around you at this stage know, oh, you know, something's not right with, with Wayne? Um, no, because most people thought that I was moody. I could be happy one day and very moody, withdrawn, um, difficult to engage with the next day. Um, that's about it because, <clears throat> as I said before, I made sure to the best of my ability, no one knew what was going on. Um, just just to give you some context as to the crisis, um, I remember driving home from a training session on a Monday night. We lived, for those who know Melbourne, we, li- we were training at Arden Street, which is North Melbourne, and my fiancé and I were living in South Yarra, and I was vice-captain to Wayne Carey, who I regard as the greatest fo- uh, football player to ever have played the game. I was 100 games into a nearly 300-game career, I was 12 months away from winning my first best and fairest and I was 24 months away from winning consecutive best and fairest, which is the highest individual award you can win at an AFL club. And I drove home one day and um, pulled up at a set of traffic lights and started crying. And Mm. um, I had no idea why. Um, As I said before, I was trained to cope as a football player, but I had no ability to cope um, with with emotions. And... um, 
I drove, managed to drive home and I sat out the front of the house for half an hour to an hour because I couldn't stop crying and I didn't want to go in to a house and show my fiance that I was being upset. So mm. I sat in the car until I composed myself, went inside and didn't say anything. Um, in fact, just shut it down for three uh, for two weeks. Um, would wait until my fiance would go to bed. <clears throat> And I'd wait a couple of hours. I would go and hop in bed, and the only way I could get to sleep was eventually through sheer exhaustion because I was, I, I, I couldn't control the crying. Mm. And at the end of that two-week period, my fiance, bless her soul, um, said, "I'm not sure what's wrong, but clearly something is, and we're going to see the doctor." And I went and saw my club doctor, um, who has become a very dear friend who, along with my fiancé, probably saved my life, and he diagnosed me with clinical depression, and that was the beginning of a 15-year journey. So what was that like, hearing hearing mm. those words for the first time? Really good question, Yeah, Anthony. it's a good question. Yeah. If I'm to be brutally honest, the only thing that I heard in a 45-minute consultation was, <clears throat> Wayne, you're depressed, and ignorantly, and I've said this publicly, at nauseam, uh, I walked out of that, and my immediate response was, that's bullshit. um, depression and mental illnesses are for weak people Mm. and that was such an uneducated ignorant repulsive thing to think but that was the that that was my limited understanding of what mental illness was that at that time mental illness to me was a sign of a weak person somebody that had a character flaw somebody that was just almost subservient to who i felt that i was i don't think that way anymore Um, Mm. and and I'm glad I don't think that way, but um, it was a it was a challenging, cha- really challenging situation to be in because I, I didn't have any control of it. I didn't have the skills, and I wanted to walk away from football. But fortunately for me, um, my doctor convinced me to stay engaged, and um, I never missed a training session. I never missed a game. I don't know how, but through his support, and my fiance is now my wife. I um, I managed to cope, and that was about the best that I could do for a six year period. I think one of the amazing things about this, and uh, and this is why it's so fabulous that you've come forward and to tell your story, is because uh, I guess people who don't understand about depression will will look at someone like Wayne Schwass and think, my God, how can that guy be depressed? Look at all that's going good in his life. Yeah. Here I am in my miserable old simple life, and mm. you know, it, it's it, it really doesn't care what class you come from, how much money you've mm-hmm. got, uh, what kind of education or background you've had. It can, it can hit everybody, can't it? Yeah, I think that that's such a poignant point that you make, Anthony. And uh, Irrespective of your colour, your creed, your race, your religion, your sexual preference, your socioeconomic standing in life, your upbringing, your family environment is irrelevant because depression and mental illnesses do not discriminate. Mm. I had money, I had cars, I had a life that 95% of the population would never get an opportunity to experience. That is material. That does not make you happy. All money does is give you choices. That's all it does. It allows you to do some other things if you've got more money, but it doesn't make you happy. So all of those things that I had on the surface, football, fame, money, nice cars, nice house, meant nothing because I was miserable, hated the person I was, had no self-worth, had no self-confidence, was achieving some pretty good things on a sporting field, but that meant nothing because I was dealing with something and it was it, it had infiltrated every aspect of my life that I, I, from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed, it shadowed me everywhere. 
And one of the things that frustrated me in the beginning when I first went public in 2006 would people would sit there and say questions like, well, what did you have to be depressed about? You were playing footy, getting well yeah. paid, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So I, I would have to spend time explaining to them what I've just explained in my answer, and that is that it doesn't discriminate. You can be really rich. You can be incredibly successful, but you can, but you can be susceptible to mental illness. You can be a poor person. You can be somebody that comes from a great upbringing. It doesn't matter. So let's shift the conversation from... Depression is for people that, you know, um, they might be weak, they might be this, they might be that. No, they're not. Anybody that lives with a mental illness is an incredibly courageous individual. I'm no more courageous than anybody else that's dealing with it. I'm lucky I've been given a vehicle to advocate and leverage off my footy career for people that don't feel like they have the courage or the voice to be able to speak up. And that's why I'm so passionate about this issue. Not so much about my story, but by sharing my story... I hope that that resonates with people that see it, listen to it, or read it, and that gives them the courage or that inspires them to do what I did much sooner than it took me to. Anthony, I mean, what Wayne is sharing, I mean, I, I just go through and I think of, um, you know, some friends of mine who are going through some challenges and and um, I think of patients, you know, when they come in and see us and you think, you know, they're just not the same as they were. I mean, our patients have come, you know, been away for a while, and they come back, and you see, you see some different constitutions, you know. And um, what, you know, this is raw. This is real. It's what Wayne is sharing. And you know, when when you go through the whole process that he's that he's explaining from that start, we we know that people are going to be listening to this and are going to resonate with it. They're going to go, you know what. What Wayne Swass is saying is what I'm going through. Well, they talk about the importance of you know AFL footballers being role models for society. You know, so you know you can't have a greater role model than sort of opens up something that people have been so afraid to talk about for so long. Because uh, what this is doing is just making that you know that that coming out from having the stigma and uh, I guess the the embarrassment and the concern that this is something that it's only me. I shouldn't be feeling this. I'm weak if I'm feeling this. T- telling you these kind of stories just just makes it's so much easier for the next person to come through, and that's what we need to do in terms of yep. moving forward with we've these got, sorts of We've got to get that message out there. Wayne. It's, interesting, it's interesting you say that, uh, Paul and Anthony, because the example that I use to anybody and everybody, if we're not feeling well physically, and I'll ask the question to audiences, what would we do? And the overwhelming answer is, as we all would suspect, is I ring the doctor and I go and see the doctor. My follow-up question is, why? Well, I want to get better. Physical. So if we look at the physical body, and you guys are treating patients all the time, if we look at the physical body and the mind as a motor vehicle, the body is your your car. It's the chassis. It's the body of the car. It's the doors, the windows, the tyres. But if the motor's not running well or if we ignore an issue with our motor, the car physically will eventually start to not to perform well. Mm. So if you look at the human body as a vehicle, our physical body is our car. Yes. Our motor is our brain. Yep. It's our emotional skill set. And I find it interesting, and that's why I ask the question, if we're not feeling physically well, do we hesitate to pick up the phone and make an appointment with the doctor? Nine out of ten times, no. When you make that appointment with the doctor and you go into the surgery, are you embarrassed? Are you ashamed? Are you fearful people might find out that you're not well? No. Because you're there and you don't care what people think because you want to get right. You want to get healthy. You want to get better. You want to feel good. 
yet it is vastly different if we're depressed, suffering from anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, OCD, these type of things, because we don't have the same mindset, because we feel that if we openly go to a GP or we openly talk to those closest to us about mental illnesses, we'll be judged. Mm. And we need to break that barrier down. We need to create an environment here and abroad where people feel just as comfortable picking up the phone and going to a GP for a mental illness concern as they are for a physical issue. We need to we need to close that gap because it's not mutually exclusive. The the emotional well being of each individual is just as important, if not more important, as the physical well being of the person. And and if we carry your analogy, Wayne, you know, and we've got to service that car. So we've got to look after that motor. So we've got to if we've got a problem with that motor, we've got to get help. Yep. And if we've got a problem with our mind in, in the in our mindset, we've got to get help. We've got to get service. We've got to look get look we've got to seek help. That's your message, isn't it? Absolutely. Because if I'm not a car person, I know where petrol goes and I know how to change a tire and I know where to put the oil, but that is it. I don't know anything else beyond cars. If my car's not running right, I'll ring up my mechanic or I'll speak to somebody who knows cars. So if we relate that to ourselves, if we ignore something that is causing us concern and stress, the longer we ignore that, the greater impact and effect that will have over our ability to function both physically and emotionally. For anybody that's listening to this podcast anywhere around the world, I don't care. If you're listening to this and you're in that situation and some of the things that we're talking about tonight are resonating, don't do what I did. Don't ignore it for six years because it took me four and a half years to unravel it and rebuild myself. The sooner we get the car into the garage, the sooner the expert can have a look, identify what the issue is, repair it, work on it, and then you're working properly again. Wayne, if you talk about the concepts of denial and and stigma that's been associated with your condition, can you, I mean, how big, I mean, they're obviously big parts of the time from when, say, the medical doctor at at the football club said you've got clinical depression, you walked out going, yeah, okay. What changed things for you what led you to actually start to accept and move away from denial and worrying about the stigma to say you know what i've got a problem and i need some help and let's move forward can you take our back chat listeners through that yep well i worried about it um from 1993 until 2006 obsessively right Mm. and that worry that fear that stigma prevented me from being my authentic self for a very, very long time because I was convinced if I opened up and I told those closest to me, family, friends, teammates, coaches, support staff, club, broader AFL community that I had a mental illness, my life would be finished because I would lose those things. So I didn't do any of that. I ignored all of that because I lived in fear constantly every day and I effectively sold my health because I was worried about what other people would think. With the benefit of hindsight and a personal experience, I don't care what people think and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. If people choose to judge me differently or negatively, that's not my business and I don't have to take that on. I'm comfortable with who I am and I will do what I need to do to stay healthy and well. Going back to that period 
um, I lived in denial for six years. Um, I was recommended to go and see two male psychiatrists. The few times that I went, I blatantly lied, told them what I thought that they wanted to hear, uh, just to get the 45-minute session over and done with, and was not invested, was not honest, was not interested in doing what I needed to do to get healthy and well, but I self-medicated through alcohol um, to the point of almost being an alcoholic for six years. Mm. That was the only way I coped. Um, and uh, I, I, I just wasn't prepared to accept or do anything in a productive, positive manner to get healthy and well. And the interesting thing is a depressed person who drinks alcohol a lot, I'm not sure people, some people might be aware of this, but if you're depressed, alcohol is a depressant. Mm. So if you're already in a state of depression and you're having a depressant, there's only one place you can go, yeah. and that's lower. Mm. And the irony of all of this is I've, n- I've never been a big drinker, but I drank a lot. I drank a lot to numb the pain and forget about it momentarily. But I can say hand on heart every time I drank, beyond the point of being drunk to being ridiculously drunk, every time I woke up, woke up and looked at myself in the mirror, I hated what I saw because I knew that alcohol was not the right thing to do. I just didn't have the guts to stop it. Um, so fast forward six years, 29 years of age, I moved to Sydney and um, I, I, I think it was an epiphany. I was doing a training drill um, and we were at the SCG, middle of the week. Um, so the only thing I had done up until this point was drink alcohol um, and I had a lot of strained relationships, including my um, engagement with my fiancé. And um, apart from her threatening to end the relationship, the epiphany was the crystallising moment. I realised at the age of 29 that I'd wasted six years of my life. I was still in exactly the same position as I was when I was first diagnosed. I'd done nothing. I finished training. I walked off the ground, walked straight into the doctor's rooms, closed the door and said to him, I'm clinically depressed. I have been since 1993. I'm not well and I need your help. And from that moment, um, a doctor at the time um, recommended or referred me to uh, one of the most amazing people that I've come across, a lady psychiatrist, and I spent the next four and a half years working with this lady to, A, understand what I was what I was dealing with, B, to begin to start to challenge some of the negative thought processes that I was having, and then C, starting to implement some cognitive behavioural therapies and strategies and skills to be able to turn that around. And over that period of time... I eventually started to wrestle control back from my illness and I started to control my life, which is empowering. Wayne, do you think that um, moving to Sydney made it easier for you to have this epiphany? Was it a new environment, uh, the same problem, seeing things in a different light, I'm going to take action? Was was that the the reason? No, I don't think so because my my condition and my illness and my problems came with me. Mm. Left, Left untreated, they go wherever you go. Um, yeah. I, I can't be any I'm not medically trained, but I, I've got a lived experience. Yeah. So I would again say to reach out to anybody who may be listening who finds themselves um, struggling with these type of things, you know, you might want to quit your job, you might want to end a relationship, you might want to make a dramatic change in life. If you're not dealing with the core issue, mm. then these same problems will follow you. Yep. So I think that that's a really important point to get across to people that it wasn't until I was prepared to get my head out of the sand, probably through desperation, but also the epiphany, that I'd wasted six years of my life. And mm. my 
there were many, 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 many times where I thought that the only solution to my situation was a permanent solution with irreversible consequences. And I lived by those thoughts through some of my most successful periods as an elite athlete. Um, but that's, in my own mind during that period of time, I thought that's the only option I had. Fortunately for me, it never got to that stage, but I had thousands of those thoughts. And I guess it, it, it was the culmination of a few things. It wasn't the fact that I was in Sydney. Um, I think one of the things that did help me when I did move to Sydney was that I hated the attention that came with my, my profession. I, I didn't like the media. I didn't like being talked about. Um, and I resented that in a lot of ways. And I, I, I felt when I played in Melbourne that, and I still think that this exists now, I feel that when you play in a state where it's such a big, passionate thing that people follow incessantly, mm. you're seen as a footballer first, second and third. Yeah. Well, what we fail to see sometimes is this is a human being who might have a wife and two kids who, just like everybody else, has to put his bins out on a Thursday night. He's worried about financial issues. He might have a... A, a situation where his mum and dad are separating. So there's a whole host of stresses. Just because we play a sport doesn't make us any different yeah. to the, the general population. But when I went to Sydney, it was refreshing because I'd fallen out, fallen out, of, out of love with the game when I had left North Melbourne for the reasons that I said before. And moving to Sydney allowed me to rediscover the love that I had for this game because I could play and train but I could also have a life outside of football. Right. And that's, and that's the balance that is critical in anybody and everybody's well-being. Whatever your job, whatever your commitments outside of that job, you must have balance. It's absolutely critical to, you know, being healthy and well consistently. So when was, just so I get the timing right here, you moved to Sydney, you, you were, you'd had this epiphany. When, uh, what, what year is that we're talking I moved to Sydney at the end of 1997. Yep. And the and the epiphany was 1999. And but it was still wasn't to 2006 that you felt sort of confident and ready to sort of announce to the world, well, this is my experience and this is my I, story. I, yeah, I grappled with this for years, Anthony, and it kept coming in 2005. I and mean, one of the things when I started to get this under control and start to feel better about who I was and what I wanted to do was one of the things that really started to, I guess, manifest itself as I started to gain, gain control was that I recognised that AFL had given me a vehicle with regards to leveraging off the popularity of AFL footy and using my profile as a former AFL player to begin to advocate and talk publicly about the challenges and the issues that mental illness cause anybody in the community that's dealing with that. So one of my motivating factors, apart from getting healthy and well, was I was committed to doing something for the benefit of other people. I wasn't sure what that was. Um, and in October of 2005, I, I mean, the interesting thing is diagnosed in 1993. I sat down in 2005, in October of 2005, and called a family meeting. Mm. And that was the first time that I talked to my dad openly. First time that I talked to my family openly, except for my partner, my wife, and it was the first time that I opened up to a couple of my close mates. Wow. So from 1993 to 2005, I hid it. Mm. And I regret that because it's such a waste of energy to pretend to everybody else if you're not well and pretend that you are well because that's doing you a disservice. So from that conversation, it was the first time 
since 1993 that I felt that I'd been genuine. I felt that I'd been honest and open with my family. I'd brought them into my world and my conversation. And it, it was such a relief because it's this collective exhale of air going, oh, it's nice not to pretend anymore. It's tough. You know, there were some tough conversations had during that two-and-a-half-hour um, chat with my family, especially with my dad. He didn't quite understand it. But I was able to sit back and go, you know what, this is the beginning of reclaiming my life. And from that conversation, I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to go public and I'm going to talk about my experiences. But I chose not to because I was fearful and worried about what people would think or say. So I spent another 12 months hiding it from everybody else. Mm. I finally got to 2006 and I said, no, that's it. I don't care whether people judge me or not. I want my life back. I want to have my life and live it the way I want to. And it was one of the greatest things that I ever did because I didn't have to pretend anymore. And uh, it was it was another step towards getting control of my life and not having to feel guilty or ashamed of the condition and the experience that I dealt with uh, for a very long time. So, Wayne, I mean, you know, I almost you, you could almost probably go back to that family meeting, couldn't you? Almost, it must be so crystal clear that that was probably your, I mean, you described the epiphany of that moment at the, at the Swans when you said you went to the, to the doctor and you got some assistance. But probably that was the big step, wasn't it, where you maybe stood on your own turf and then declared it upon your family, you know, obviously, you know, your father who was obviously a big influence in your life. And, I mean, can you... Because I, I can, I can imagine people listening to this, you know, and and who are tormented by this. To then hear what you've gone through for that period of time, but then also seeing light at the end of the tunnel, mm. you know, having that moment where you know you might have had some hard conversations on, the, on those two and a half hours of your dad, but then, can you just share further that that real positive experience that you went through from that? So that people yeah. can und- can identify that from the pain, we can move through this. Yeah, it's interesting. I've got goosebumps just listening to you say that, Paul. I'll share something, and hopefully this will resonate with people. For almost 15 years, I'd convinced myself that if I dare say anything, I'd lose the respect of my father, my family, my teammates, my coaches, my club, my code, the industry. Yep. And I convinced myself to the point where I had sold my health and well-being because I felt that that was far more important to retain all of those things and to hell with my health and well-being. And <clears throat> I felt that prior to going public in um, March 2006, I would ring my six closest male mates. Four of those were... Um, Five of those were from my football days and one of them was a friend that I've had from um, a young age in country Victoria. And I felt that I owed them my story before they read it in the paper out of respect for the relationship that I had with them. And the the interesting thing that um, was consistent with all of those conversations was in their own words, all six said two things that were pretty much identical. One, how are you now? So for 15 years, I'd convinced myself I couldn't talk to my mates because I'd lose them. 
and they all said, number one question, how are you now? Are you okay? Yep. And that, that really upset me a lot because I'd sold these guys short because mm. I was convinced I'd lose them. And the second question, which probably grates me more, is they all said in their own way, why didn't you tell me? And that, that, that was a defining moment that <clears throat> I consciously made a decision that I couldn't talk to them because I felt that they would lose respect for me because of my condition. I'm still great friends with all of those six guys. Um, and it's, it's something that I feel incredibly privileged and humbled by the fact that they stood by me. But I feel terribly guilty in a sense that I didn't give them the opportunity to support me at a much earlier stage because I'm convinced that they would have, but I convinced myself that they wouldn't during that period of time. And the epiphany, talking to my family, and then talking to those six male mates was the crystallising effect that got me to the stage where I felt confident and I felt I had enough courage to take a significant risk and open up publicly about my condition. And I'm, I'm very thankful for having that opportunity. Well, Wayne, it sounds like, um, I guess, the coming out and explaining to your family and friends and the general public about your condition and depression was probably the uh, the most important thing that you did for your health. I'm sure there are many other strategies, and like you said, the cognitive behavioural therapy and many other things, and maybe we could... Uh, get you to talk about that in just a few moments but it sounds like the really critical thing the most important thing that really took the weight off your shoulders was just telling people this is what's mm. happening and that's yeah, it, everything gets yeah. better from there yeah it's it, it's not a it's not immediate but i think the really important thing is and i and i talk about this a lot it's about being authentic and when you're not and you're living a lie and you're putting up a facade and you're investing quite literally every waking moment in every interaction, in every aspect of your life, to pretend and to show other people that you're okay when clearly you're not, that is such a waste of emotional intelligence and energy. It's non-productive and, in fact, it puts you further away from getting healthy and getting well. And the fact of asking for help, number one, bringing my wife and my family into my world and talking openly and honestly, doing the same with my closest mates and then doing it in a very public manner and exposing my story was the first time since 1993 that I could walk into a room, walk down a street, walk into any environment and not have to pretend. Mm. And it was at that moment that I felt I was back in control of my life because up until that stage, my illness controlled my life and almost ruined my life. I think, um, Wayne, you know, when you look at the, the layers you've gone through, you know, you, you've gone to the doctor and you've, there's sort of protective elements of that with, a, with you know, the, the encounter with the medical doctor and also with family to some degree, right? There might be un, there may be un, a lack of understanding initially, but over time perhaps there's, you know, there's education, right? And this is all part of this podcast to educate uh, men especially to open up. And then there's talking to your mates and, you know, and, and being you know, pleasantly surprised by it, but then the outside, good mates will stick by you. Yeah. I, I think the biggest challenge possibly was going to an external environment, which is pretty savage, called the media. Did you get – did you 
Were you um, supported through that whole process or were you dumbfounded by some people out there in in the media world who, you know, perhaps hunting for a story or looking for an angle or did you or did you get genuine support from the industry? Yeah, there's a, there's a few answers to that, um, Paul. One, I was overwhelmed with the support. Um, I was blown away. I was getting stopped by complete strangers in the street. Still do now, not as often. Um I have had close friends, I have had colleagues, I have had people that I've worked with come to me and open up about their situations and I have supported them through and will continue to do that when those situations arise because of the support that I got. I think what's really important here too is I had another male mate um, who was a great friend of mine who once he found out um, my story, he wanted to judge me negatively and that's okay I don't have any animosity towards him I just choose not to be part of his life anymore and I don't make apologies for that Um, and I've had those situations arise with family members if I need to do whatever I need to do to be healthy and well and whether it be a friend a family member or a colleague wants to be negative with regards to what I'm trying to do to help myself to get back to good health and well-being then I don't need that negativity in my life because I've dealt with enough, enough negativity with my own mental illness and I don't make apologies for that. Um, and I have encouraged people and would encourage anybody that you need to do whatever you have to do to get healthy and well and you don't need to make excuses for yourselves. And if people want to be negative about what you're dealing with or towards you, then you have the choice of whether or not they're part of your life. And if you choose not to, then... I would support that because your health and well-being is the number one priority. Um, One of the great frustrations that I still have in our code is I've been lobbying the code of AFL football since 2006 about the importance of this issue, about the need to proactively address it and deal with it in our own code for our players, our coaches, our administrators, and more broadly, our community. And for those who may be listening overseas, the Code of AFL Football has done a remarkable job changing attitudes towards racial vilification. And through a 25-year concerted education campaign, we now have our own supporters dobbing in or reporting their own supporters who are racially vilifying somebody. That's a generational change through education. It frustrates me that our code hasn't embraced mental illness in the same manner because I think that same opportunity does exist. And it really annoys me when I see, read or hear members of the media who have no education, who have no understanding and have no empathy with regards to people dealing with mental illness. And why that annoys me so much is when you are privileged in the media to comment and report on our sport, the good and the not so good, it is your responsibility, in my opinion, to educate yourself about these type of things. And I'll say that for a very, very good reason, in my opinion. The language we use, the things that we say, can have a detrimental impact on somebody who's grappling with these type of illnesses. But conversely, it can have an enormously positive impact if we're educated and we know how to hold a conversation, we know how to say certain things, the language that we use, the tone that we use to deliver it. It's about listening without judging. And our industry, the one that I still derive an income in, 
do a lot of good things really well. But we've still got a way to go with regards to how do we talk about this. I still get media people ringing me. I don't know what to say. In my opinion, you need to educate yourself because when you get asked about this, you can come from an informed position. And that, when we look at the print, the TV and the radio, there's thousands and thousands of people listening, reading and watching at the end of those TVs, radios or newspapers. If we don't say it in the right manner, if we're not educated with how we're saying it, the language that we're using, the tone that we're inferring it with can have a positive or negative impact. And and, and I don't want to overplay that, but if somebody is really struggling with these type of illnesses and they come to you and you're the only person that I, they open up to, how we behave, what we say, how we react can either give them the confidence to keep going forward and seeking help or they may not or ever ask for help again. And I don't want to overplay it, but that's the position that every single one of us will be at at some point. And I would encourage everybody to learn a bit about mental health, signs and symptoms, language, what is it, how does it affect people? Because at some point during our life, if we haven't in the past, if we're not right now, I promise you, at some point in the future, you'll come into a fa- you'll come into contact with someone you love, a family member, a partner, a colleague, a boss, someone within your social network that is struggling with this stuff. And the greatest gift that we can give is to be able to support somebody back to good health. Mate, that's incredibly powerful. And you know, I just just listening to every word you're saying then I'm thinking to myself, you know, the the lack of education of of on ne- on many fronts. And you, and you think of a, a player who is out of form yep. and, you know, he sets his benchmark at a certain level and is not performing or maybe – or injury, what have you. And then you look at the – I suppose the way – the savage way that those players can be ridiculed by – um, supporters or, um, yep. you know, media, the scrutiny. I mean, the number of journalists, mate, the, the journalist ratio in AFL, I don't know what the number is, but two it's... To three or two, to three, two to three to one. Really? Two wow. to three journalists two to... Two to three to one. Yeah, me- accredited media people in our game um, to one player. So right. we've got eight, we've got eight hundred players. We've got two and a half thousand accredited media people. So Amazing. we've got we've got some guys who've got to be pretty, you know, got to keep busy, right? Yeah. So they've got to find any nook or cranny. Which you know, I think sometimes some of the things they bring up, you think seriously, guys. I mean, we don't really yep. care about so and so's doing this. It's but you know, you've got to keep busy, I suppose, and have a story. You know, whereas you know, we've talked about this before. We had Tim Robards, you know, journalistic license, you know, some responsibilities, some accountabilities. In regards to all this, and it's not just trying to get a get a story out there. It's um, it's kind of understanding we're dealing with a human being here, aren't we? Uh, I think that's just such a poignant point that you make, Paul. Is that you know we, we we see the athlete. How fast does he run? How many goals does he kick? How good a player can he be? How far can he run? How many marks can he take? We see we see as as a general comment. We see the athlete first, second, and third. What we fail to see sometimes is the person. Mm. And I think the modern-day coaches, the new generation of coaches, are better equipped and have a more holistic approach to recognising that, yes, I've got 42 fit, young, 
risk-taking athletes and um, that's a really privileged position to be in. But I also think that it's incumbent on the senior coach and all other coaches and the clubs to respect and also support the human element of each individual athlete. And if we ignore that, then we run the risk of more stories like mine. And I say that with experience. My physical athletic performance was to a reasonably high level right through some really seriously unwell stages of my life. But as a, as a human being, as a man, um, I was failing miserably in so many aspects of my life. So we've got to be careful that we're balanced. And if in the media, and I, I'm, I'm a fan of US sports, and I think the US media are much harsher on some of the athletes over there, but you know, we, we judge a performance based on two and a half hours every weekend. So, for instance, if, if I'm judging Paul for a poor performance on the weekend, all I'm judging it on is based on what I've seen. How am I to know that his parents have just separated? How am I to know that his sister may have passed away? How am I to know that he's got a relationship issue within his family or his, with his partner? He's from Victoria, she's from WA, and she wants to move back to WA, and they've got a couple of kids. What we don't, what we don't do well in our industry is balance our commentary. So instead of being overcritical, Let's be constructive. Let's base it on what we what we know and what we see, but let's not go after the individual and publicly assassinate the man or, or the woman because I don't know of any other industry outside of sport where the media, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, are making opinions, commenting, pulling performances apart, critiquing, criticising uh, individual athletes. I'd love to flip it around one day and, and park myself... Hmm at the entry point of one of the major papers here in Melbourne and just hurl abuse at the at the journalists for a poor article. Yeah. They, they wouldn't cope. No, you're probably right there. Well, look, I, I thank goodness for, for stories like yours, Wayne, because I think um, – it's a slow process, but but as you said before, with modern day coaches and just general understanding about mental health, I think we are improving. But uh, yeah, maybe some uh, more pressure from the public needs to come to bear on the AFL, and uh, let's have a uh, mental health round to go with the Indigenous round well, and the other things that we already have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, all right, now um, we're about to wrap up, but maybe you could um, encapsulate everything you've said, and you know, it's been a wonderful story, and we've so enjoyed listening to it, as I'm sure our listeners have but maybe you could just sum up with uh, three take-home messages for our back chat listeners yep uh, to people that might be listening to this wherever you are if you're not coping um, I'd like to say that I admire your courage your determination and your ability to continue to function as best you can um, and you're as just as courageous as I or anybody else that might be grappling with these things are secondly if you are grappling with these type of illnesses and they're causing you significant stress, please, please, please ask for help. It's incredible the amount of help out there if you're prepared to make the quantum leap and ask for help. Do not ignore your health and well-being because if you ignore it, your condition will start to control every aspect of your life more and more. So don't ignore that. The sooner you get to help, the sooner you can start to get control back and learn the skills. And finally, to anybody that may be listening that has someone in their life that is dealing with these type of things, the best bit of advice that I can give you is sometimes these conversations are really difficult and sometimes we don't want to hear them. But if somebody in your family, friend, network comes to you one day and says, I'd like to talk to you, 
the most important bit of advice I can leave you with is be prepared to listen to them and please don't judge them. Because if we judge them, that adds to the way that they see themselves, which is invariably negatively. I don't expect you to be the expert, but give that person the opportunity to talk openly without judging them or criticising them. And then I would encourage you to go and talk to a professional about the conversation to see what else you can do to help. You're not the professional. Whoever's talked to you needs to see the professional, but you can be a really important conduit between the person who's not coping and getting them to the front door of a professional who can really start to help them cope better. Well, Anthony, um, probably this is one of our most heartfelt shows. Definitely. Well, we normally run for 30 minutes, and I just realised we're up to 49 just because we're so deep in uh, yeah. in, in conversation. That was wonderful, Wayne. Thank you so much. Just It was insightful and you know raw and honest, and we really appreciate uh, you, you being so open with, with us and with with the public at, 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 in general. No, it's, look, it's... Um it's a pleasure, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to have a chat with you guys. Thank you for giving this type of um, area in people's lives the attention that it deserves. And you know, I hope somewhere, someone gets something from this, and that can give them a little bit of courage and confidence to go forth and get some help. Well, I can assure you, Wayne, you definitely have made an impact, and you will have affected many, many people. Regards what you've said tonight. So, if uh you have struggling a little bit with depression. We suggest you go to www.beyondblue.org.au, which is a, has a website in Australia to support those suffering with depression. And there's a phone number there, 1300 224636. That's 1300 224636. Uh, Wayne has been completely honest and transparent, and this may have created some deep emotions for people. So we are going to give the lifeline phone number for immediate support, which is 13. 1114 in Australia. That's 131114 in Australia. And that's 24 hours, 24 uh, 7. And for any overseas listeners, we uh, we advise you please check your directives for an equivalent support number. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Backchat Podcast. All relevant website links of today's show will be on our Backchat Podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We'll leave you one thought. Be the best at what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.